Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. Today we are taking a deep dive into our archives to the very, very first podcast that I ever recorded. And it was, I started off at the top of my game. It was with the New York Times bestselling author, Jerry Jenkins. So listen in as you go back to our very first podcast as we seek to relaunch the Life is Story podcast. Uh, we're going to be offering to you some podcasts from our archives beginning with this one. So Enjoy. All right, this is Josh Olds from thechristiancritic.net, welcoming you to our inaugural podcast segment. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure and honor of having New York Times bestselling author Jerry Jenkins on the line with me today. Jerry, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Josh. Now, we're here to talk about your latest novel, The Last Operative, which just released. Before we get into that, I know you recently had knee surgery. So how's your recovery going so far? Well, today is uh, 14 days since uh, since the surgery, and uh, it's really quite a major operation. I made the mistake of going online and watching them do one of these, and uh, boy, it looked like they were putting a battleship in there. They used drills and saws and hammers and all, all kinds of things, but fortunately, uh, the technology has come quite a long way the last few years, and, and I only have a five-inch incision, mm-hmm. and... Uh, first few days, um, they were telling me, make sure you take your pain meds because you need to do your therapy and get your, you know, your uh, flexibility and all that stuff. And I had been really working out hard the, the, the month before surgery so that my legs would be built up for, for all that. But the pain meds could not keep up with the pain. And uh, so they had to make some adjustments. But I think they've got it down now. I'm not feeling too much pain anymore. It's still very tight and uh, swollen. But uh, I started outpatient. Uh, therapy tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to, to getting into it. All right, well, that sounds good. I wish you the best in your recovery. Um, now let's get right into talking about the last operative. Now it's your newest novel, but it's really one of your oldest stories. So let, let's go back 20 years or so, uh, and I want to ask you how you got your start in the writing business, and what led to Harper and Row publishing the operative, which was the original story. Yeah, I had. Uh, um, when I, when I first came out with The Operative, the original, uh, it was my first standalone novel. That would have been the late 1980s. So I had been, um, I'd been writing books for probably 15 years by that time. Um, a lot of nonfiction. I did a lot of, uh, as told to, autobiographies of famous people, athletes and evangelists and people like that. Um, and I had a, a couple of fiction series. Um, I'd done the Margot Mysteries and I was at a writer's conference out in California, and I met Roy Carlyle, who was then an editor at Harper and Row, and he was kind of intrigued by my Margot Mystery series and was encouraging me, and, and I'd always had this secret dream to be published by Harper and Row, and uh, so I was telling him about my novel idea, and he was he basically was putting me off for a while, saying, you know, keep writing the Margot Mysteries, keep growing and learning, and, and we'll keep taking a look, and... Uh, you, know, you have to learn your craft and, and pay your dues. And so I kept doing that, and I would send him a new one every time they, they came out. And finally, I pitched him again on The Operative, which is a you know, story of an international spy, uh, sort of a spy thriller type story. And uh, and he liked liked it, and uh, and so that became my first standalone novel. And I, I really felt like it was a major step in my career. And uh, and then, it, it you know, it didn't do... Tremendously well. It wasn't a big hit like uh, like Left Behind became later with Tyndale and stuff like that. But it was it had a fairly loyal audience and and uh, people liked it. But uh, when I was I, I did an exclusive contract with Tyndale 
um, after Left Behind so that uh, we could keep working together for several years on several different projects. And one of the ideas they had was to resurrect the operative and completely rewrite it, update it, bring it into the you know 21st century with computers and, and cell phones and all the things that didn't exist back in the late uh, late 80s. Um, and so that's that's really how this came about. And I had great fun just going in and, and uh, thoroughly rewriting the whole story, adding a new ending to it, uh, changing all the technology, and and uh, and then you know in essence writing the story the way I would with, with 20 more years of experience. Right. Now I had the pleasure of reading the operative a few years ago when I don't even remember where I picked the book up at. I think it may have been at a library bookstore or something of that nature. But I was really interested to, to really. Uh, pick up one of your older books because before that I'd really only uh, experienced Left Behind and um, a couple of your other standalone novels. Uh, but I, so when I got the last operative before I before I picked that book up, I, I went back and read through the through the operative, and I was able to really see and experience those changes that you made. Um, what how how was the writing process different when you're sort of replanning and reformatting and updating a novel? compared to actually writing one from scratch? Well, the hardest work that I think a, a novelist does is to, to create from scratch. So in, in one sense, I found this a lot easier because I had this body of work to, to go from, and I, I felt the story was strong and the plot points were strong. Uh, I always did feel like we could have had a more expanded ending and a more evocative uh, ending, and if, if people like it, maybe it would, it would lend itself to a sequel, which I think we've accomplished here. But... It was fun to go through and then just just clean up the the writing uh, because you learn so much over the years. I, I, I write much tighter now than I ever did. I'm, I'm sort of a minimalist. Um, I even changed the main character's last name. Um, you know, added added much more to the ending to to bring out uh, the family dynamics and some of the uh, uh, you know interactions and relationships that are you know might happen in the future. But uh, I found it a lot more fun than starting over because, uh, as I say, that's really hard work. When you just sit down and, and invent a world and characters and situations, that's uh, that's like mining or digging a ditch. And uh, here I felt like I was just doing some some polishing, and and, uh, and yet it was a thorough rewrite too. So I really went through and and uh, one of one of the things I had done in the in the, uh, the first uh, the first version of this is. Uh, I, I tried an experiment where I didn't uh, use any dialogue attribution where you say he said, she said, or he responded, or that type of thing. I just wanted to describe action and then have dialogue and make it clear who was speaking. And uh, I think doing a lot of that is a good thing for a novel to, to, to use as little attribution as possible because you want to be clear who's speaking. But to do it without any whatsoever was really kind of a challenge. And I didn't tell anybody about it. I just wrote it that way. Nobody at Harper and Row mentioned it. Nobody, no editor or proofreader ever said anything. No reader ever said, "Hey, I never knew who was speaking." It just worked, and uh, and I never did it again. I, you know, because it's it's quite a chore to do a whole book that way. But uh, I think it has really informed my writing, and I, I use less attribution than ever. But I I uh, made sure that that uh, I maintained that in this rewrite too, and uh, but this time I did mention it in the in the uh, author's note in the beginning of the book. I just said, you know. Uh, let me know how you feel that works. So, I'd be curious to know how you felt. Did you did you notice it, or was it something you were watching for? Or? Uh, having read the operative before I picked up the last operative, I I had no clue. I mean, it wasn't something that I had even thought about. And then when I read the author's note, I went back 
and through the novel, and I was like, oh yeah, like, there's there is no attribution. But at the same point, I never felt like I was confused about who was speaking. It all seemed pretty obvious. Yeah, good. Now th- this is a sort of a spy thriller novel. You know, you have um, Jordan, who's an NSA spy. Uh, what sort of research did you do for this book? Was there any that you did? Yeah, I had to do a lot more research for this book than almost any other book I've ever done because, you know, being that the National Security Agency is one of our our biggest, uh, you know, spy organizations in our government, it's not like they give tours. You can't go there and and uh, you know walk through and see what they're doing, and so. Most of the books written about the place are from disgruntled uh, former employees or just people who want to be helpful, and uh, there are limits on what they can tell you. But there's there's a, a pretty good nonfiction uh, documentary about the National Security Agency called uh, The Puzzle Palace, and uh, and several other books. So I really immersed myself in those. And uh, uh, when I was in uh, in Washington, I went to the Spy Museum, which is sort of it's it's fairly commercial and it doesn't tell you too much specifically about the NSA, but there were a lot of things I picked up there. But uh, it was fun to research it because it's such a secretive place. And then uh, where there's uh, where there are gaps in the research and they don't tell you, then I, I, because it's fiction, I was able to just sort of make up some things, but they had to be credible and, and realistic. So it was a lot of fun doing this research. Right. Now, one of the things that really impressed me about the book was your depiction of sort of Jordan's training regimen. Uh, th- that's in a pretty intense training regimen. Was that something you made up, or was that based on actual training methods? It's a little of both. My father was a, uh, a police chief, and uh, uh, in, in his career, when I was a young kid, my dad was, uh, you know, in his 30s and was went to FBI National Academy training um, that they did for, for top policemen, and some of that came from there. They had pretty rigorous training, and then a lot of it I... I borrowed too from uh, basic training in the military, especially for uh, things like Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Special Forces and that type of thing. So it was a little bit of a, a combination of, of uh, uh, what I knew from real life and then, and then just making it up and deciding that this is how they would train their, their young operatives. Right. Now, in both, in both novels, the scenario has the main character, Jordan. He's trying to stop weapons that are being smuggled into the United States. Uh, by way of the southern border, uh, that is actually a very, very plausible scenario, and it's been plausible for the last 20 years. Do you think it's more plausible now than it was when you first wrote the operative? I'd like to think that it's less plausible. I mean, I'd like to think that in 20 years they've closed that radar gap, but when I did the first novel, that that was based on something I had read somewhere where that uh, a big problem was was drug uh, runners would would use this gap in our radar, and and uh, it's down by the Yucatan Peninsula, and uh, we're able to get in there without anybody knowing. And I thought, well, if they could get get uh, drugs in there, why couldn't they get nuclear equipped warheads or or weapons or something like that? And uh, so I, you know, that that's the thing where I, I'm hoping that uh, with our new technology and and where we've come in 20 years, it'd be less likely for an enemy to do that. And on the other hand. In the ensuing years, um, we've had en- enemies now that have actually breached our borders. I mean, with 911, they they come in and use our own planes to to you know, destroy our buildings. So it's uh, it's sort of a mixed bag. We may have found ways to keep people from smuggling in things through the radar gap, but we can't stop them from from coming and uh, themselves and using our equipment. So it's uh, we live in scary times. Yeah. 
Now, I, I want to switch gears a bit. This, I, I think this is right. This is your 176th published book. Is that correct? Right. So I have to ask, how in the world can you be so prolific in your writing? Well, I don't sing or dance or preach. You know, this is this is all I do. And uh, I, I like to say that I've, I've now finally written more books than I've ever read. Um, that isn't <laughs> true, but it's fun to say. Um, but basically, and it may sound like false modesty, but I really feel like I, uh, there isn't anything else that I do well. And so I feel like I've been given this one gift, and I feel obligated to uh, to exercise it. And so um, maybe if I was a if I was a preacher or a, a teacher or or a coach or something else, that uh, I would sp- spread myself a little thinner and do a lot of different things. But um, I, I really don't feel like that I'm gifted in those other areas, and so. Um, when it's time for me to work, I tend to be be working on a book. Okay, well that brings us to the question: in, in order to be that productive, what is your normal writing day like? Well, I, I tend to be a compartmentalizer. I, um, you know, a lot of people that I know write every day. Um, you know, I think the, the the word on Stephen King is that he writes five or ten pages a day every day of the year except for Christmas. You can get an awful lot done in that time. Uh, I'm not an everyday writer. I tend to, you know, I, I own the Christian Writers Guild, and there's a, you know, I've got a staff, and I've got uh, a lot of clients. I also own Jenkins Entertainment, a film company that my son runs, but there's a lot to do with that. And then a lot of media that's still around based on, you know, because of the visibility of the Left Behind series. So I've got a lot of stuff to do that's not writing related. So when I have a book due, I just I leave my office. I have a place about 80 miles west of our home in Colorado Springs. It's in the, near the Continental Divide, and I just I only write. And so when I'm on deadline, I figure out how many pages I need to write per day to make my deadline. And uh, and you know what I'll do is I, I'm a morning person, so I'll get up and and uh, and get at it. And the first thing I do every day is I edit the work that I've written the day before. And I'm a fairly fast writer because of my background in, in newspaper journalism and, and magazine journalism. And I'll write between 10 and 20 pages a day when I'm on deadline. So uh, so each day, the first thing I do is, is do a real heavy edit and rewrite of the pages I did the day before. And that kind of gives me a, a launch into, into that day's writing. And I'll do another 10 or 20 pages. And the next day, edit that and keep going like that. And when I get to the, to the end... Then I run the whole thing through the computer one more time, or I do do a final polish. So I'm doing basically a, a one and a half to two draft uh, type of piece of work. And I've also found I, I'll never turn anything in that I'm not happy with. So if I need to do two or three drafts of it, I'll do it. But what I've found is that because of the way I work and and how heavily I edit myself as I go, um, I find that I after one or two revisions, I'm not really making it better. I'm just making it different. And you have to know that and, and know when to quit. Um, so once I'm, I'm happy with every word, then I, then I send it off. But that's pretty much how my, my writing days go. Okay. Now, you've mentioned Left Behind several times, and that definitely became quite the cultural phenomenon. Did you have any idea when you sat down to, to plan out um, the first book, Left Behind, did you have any idea how the series would be received? Not really. I think I think we thought, you know, Dr. LaHaye had a great idea, and uh, and I felt sort of uniquely qualified to write it just because of my background in in fiction and nonfiction, and because I was raised in the tradition that believed the way Dr. LaHaye did. I'm not a theologian or a scholar, uh, and he's not a fiction writer. So we really were both doing 
you know, playing to our strengths. I, I relied on him for, you know, the expertise and the, the biblical, um, you know, theological referencing and that type of thing. But I got the fun part. I got to do all the writing. And uh, we thought we had something special and that it might sell a couple hundred thousand copies and be a bestseller in the, in the Christian market. But uh, about four books into that thing, uh, it, it had taken over, you know, become such a phenomenon that, that the first book alone was selling about 275,000 copies every month. And uh, it was just overwhelming. I mean, I, for one thing, we thought we were going to do the whole story and everything in one book. I got halfway through the writing and realized I only covered two weeks of the, of the seven years of tribulation. So we said, well, maybe it needs to be a trilogy, and the publisher agreed. And then halfway through the second book, I realized it only covered about two months. And so then we scoped it out and said, okay, probably 12 books. And in the end, as you know, it, it became 12 books plus three prequels plus a final sequel. So a total of 16 books. And uh, it still astounds us to this day that, that it, uh, it became the, the huge phenomenon that it did. Right. How has your writing affected uh, post Left Behind? I mean, you spent over a decade you know, writing this series. How has your writing been affected now in, in the wake of that? Well, I think I, I did learn a lot about how you, you simply don't have time when you, in your writing to, to run down different rabbit trails and, and bore the reader. You've got to make every word count. And uh, interestingly, besides writing the Left Behind series during that decade, I was also doing other books too. So I was doing several books a year, and uh, it does tend to really focus you. And, and because Left Behind became so visible and there was a lot of media associated with it, it cut down on the time to write. So I found that when I was writing, I really had to concentrate and, and just cut out all the fluff and get to the point. And uh, so, yeah, I do think that, uh, that that experience and seeing how people reacted to it has informed uh, the kind of writing I've done since. All right. Uh, now, and uh, you've mentioned earlier as well that you're also involved in a lot of other projects. You have Jenkins Entertainment and you have the Writers Guild. Uh, what do you do as a part of the Writers Guild? And really, what is the Writers Guild for? Well, I bought the Writers Guild from my old friend Norm Rohr uh, about 10 years ago. <clears throat> I, I've always wanted to teach writing, and I, I used to do a lot of it at the writers' conferences, but, but again, with the visibility of Left Behind and all the media demands, it's been difficult for me to get out to all those things. And so um, I, I thought owning the Writers Guild would be a good way to, to teach without having to, to travel so much. And what we basically did, Norm Rohr used to do the Writers Guild himself. He would teach writers by mail. And he had a course, and they would send in their lessons, and he would grade them and judge them and give them hints and, and send it back. And uh, I just wanted to, to really expand that. So I put a lot of money into advertising, rewriting the courses, um, hiring about 40, um, not full-time, but part-time mentors who were sort of like Norm, but they would each take a certain number of students and do it all by email. So we have about 1,000 students, and we have annual conferences and, and, uh, and regional conferences and things like that. And uh, an annual contest, a first novel contest. Our our winners have been published through Tyndale, and uh, basically the the point of the Christian Writers Guild is to restock the pool of Christian writers. I really want to be able to give back to the industry, to the ministry, but also to make sure that there are people coming along that will replace uh, those of us who are kind of carrying the ball now. And uh, so that's been very gratifying. And we have uh, seven full-time employees, and as I say, about 40 mentors, and uh, it's been really re rewarding. Do you see the future of Christian fiction being fairly strong? I do. It seems to be growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Um, 
there haven't been too many things that have crossed over and, and has been as big as Left Behind, but Left Behind did open a lot of doors, and so Christian fiction is getting into secular outlets, and uh, you see more Christian fiction now than you ever have, and uh, I'm not sure that, that Left Behind necessarily opened all those doors. I think the, the precursor to all that was uh, uh, Frank Peretti and his uh, his novels that, that really you know knocked some barriers down, and... Uh, this present darkness was one that really, you know, opened a lot of doors for the rest of us. But uh, yeah, it seems like like uh, there's no end to to the possibilities for Christian fiction now. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to new writers who would want to write in the Christian market? Well, I always tell people that you know one of the big mistakes we see from from young writers is they want to start their career with a book. And starting your career with a book is sort of like starting your education as a five-year-old in graduate school. You really need to learn your craft and hone your skills. And so I encourage people to write shorter things, write for your school or your school newspaper or your church bulletin or your local paper, denominational papers, Sunday school take-home papers, that type of thing, um, and, that, and learn the craft and then start, you know, to graduate to a book. The competition is as fierce as it's ever been. And uh, so I do encourage people to take courses like we offer at the Christian Writers Guild and uh, go to writers' conferences and really learn how to do it. It's uh, it's about a thousand to one shot now to, to get a book published. I do urge people to, to not self-publish or vanity publish because you're not really being published, you're being printed and you're paying for it. And what we're trying to, to teach people is how to become professional writers and get paid for what you do, have the publisher take that risk. And... Uh, and publish legitimately. There are, there are times when you self-publish. I self-published my father's poetry because I knew that only a few hundred people would be interested in it, or a biography of my wife's grandmother who lived to be over 100 years old. Uh, sometimes there are family things that you just want to have printed, but uh, but to be to be legitimately published, it takes a lot of work, a lot of study, and uh, a lot of dedication. Okay. Now, we've been talking about Christian fiction, and this has made me think about a, a quote then I'm going to paraphrase from C.S. Lewis, and Lewis actually wrote extensively on this, but what, what he said boiled down something like this. He said that there's no Christian way to write, just as there's no Christian way to boil an egg. Um, what would you say to that? I, I see what he's saying there, and I, I, I think that it's important that uh, um, we know that we're talking about fiction written by a Christian, not necessarily Christian fiction. Now, it happens that Left Behind was very overt. It was two Christian authors with a Christian publisher writing about, of all things, the prophetic end of the world, the rapture of the church, the coming of Christ. So there was no getting around the fact that this is uh, you know, a very uh, overtly evangelical Christian story. Um, but what makes it work is not, uh, you know, from a fiction standpoint, is is whether the the writing works. I mean, are, do people care about the characters and want to keep turning the pages? Um, not all of my fiction is that overtly evangelical, and and yet it comes from from a Christian worldview. And to me, the difference between Christian uh, Christian writing fiction and a secular person writing fiction is is that worldview. I, I see these books uh, on television that you know maybe Oprah recommends or other people, and the, and you, you get them to read them, and you find that they have fantastic technique, wonderful writing, beautiful phrasing. But in the end, it's pessimistic. You know, it's basically life is horrible, and then you die. And they're gritty, and they're realistic, and they're they're you know they're downers. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, if a, if a Christian wrote that book 
whether it winds up with everybody becoming believers or missionaries or whatever else, you don't want it to be unrealistic, it should at least end with hope because that's our worldview. In the end, God wins, and there is hope, and there is heaven waiting and, and that type of thing. So I want to see Christians writing, again, ready, realistic, uh, hard, tough fiction, but that in the end has that, uh, that believer's worldview of hope. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly what Lewis was talking about when he was saying that we can't make excuses for bad art because it's supposedly Christian, but yet we're called to still be, you know, technically good at our writing while, you know, infusing our art with our worldview. Yeah, that's an important distinction, too, because for so many years, people would say, well, it's really a good book for a Christian book, or it's really a good movie for a Christian movie. Um, and we do tend to hide behind the fact that, well, we're just trying to serve the Lord and, and use our little humble gifts for this. The fact is, our work should be better than the secular world's, because we have a power source in the Holy Spirit that they don't have. Um, we lag behind, because, you know, for instance, in this area of, of movie making, it's easy to curse Hollywood. You can look at it and say, you know, the worldview is so screwed up and, and their their movies are, can be so depressing and all that. But the fact is they make the best movies on the planet. And if we're going to compete in that field, regardless of our message, it has to be technically good or it won't compete. And, and the last thing we want to hear from, from our films is people say, well, you know, uh, for a Christian movie, it was good. We, we just want it to be a good movie. And uh, if it's a good movie, then the message will come through stronger, too. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we're running out of time, so I want to ask you just a few more questions. Uh, what What do you have on the docket coming up as far as your writing? What are your upcoming projects? I'm working on a, a trilogy of novels um, that's set, uh, they're set in Chicago, and uh, I think we're going to, I mean, we just have working titles at this point, but I think the first title is called The Brotherhood, and it's a Precinct 11 novel. It's based on... Uh, the toughest uh, police precinct in Chicago, at Harrison District Precinct 11. And it's about a young guy that always wanted to be a cop and uh, and fight the gangs and that type of thing. Goes through a personal tragedy and and his faith is tested. But uh, it'll, as I say, it's a trilogy. So the first one comes out next spring and then uh, in the next two um, in the years after that. So it'll be a fun one because I come from a law enforcement family. So a lot of the research is just from listening to my brothers and my dad talk about their uh, their histories on the police departments. Right, and, and that would be published by Tyndale, correct? Right. Okay. Uh, now, last question. Uh, where can your fans get in touch and keep up with you? Uh, JerryJenkins.com. I do a okay. blog that I update pretty frequently and, and uh, have lots of stuff. Anything they need to know, probably more than they want to know, is at JerryJenkins.com or Christian Writers Guild, G-U-I-L-D.com, tells all about how they can... Uh, study writing through the CWG. All right. Well, Jerry, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, be on the podcast today. I want to wish you the best of luck in your recovery from knee surgery. So, Thank you very much.